Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome everyone to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for joining us. Very excited for today's show. We are talking about how PhDs get into leadership roles and specifically what separates leaders from managers. We have a very special guest coming on today, James Robbins. Uh, James's page will be put in the chat box uh, a bit later when we bring him on. He is a world-renowned speaker. He's also an author, and this is his specialty, getting into these leadership roles. We're going to be bringing on uh, Associate Eva as well as Evgenia, and they'll be talking to us about their career paths. One went into technical sales, one went into medical writing. So we're going to continue digging into these different career paths for you so you can determine which path is right for you. You can ask your questions. We have a lot of ground to cover today. And again, the overall topic is how PhDs get into leadership roles and what the difference is between a leader and a manager. So we're going to jump right in uh, to a couple of promotional items, and then we're going to bring on Jeanette for the show me the data section. I do want to mention for those of you watching us publicly that we have a very special LinkedIn webinar happening tomorrow. I'm going to show that on the screen here, 12 LinkedIn strategies for getting hired in industry. This is a very special, rare public webinar that we do with the most up-to-date LinkedIn strategies um, that we see working for PhDs that are getting PhDs hired into industry. Remember, there's not just a LinkedIn for you, the job candidate, there's also a LinkedIn for employers, LinkedIn talent, sometimes called LinkedIn recruiter, and they see a different LinkedIn, they're able to search for you. We're going to open up the, the black box of what that LinkedIn looks like on this particular webinar, and we're going to go through these 12 secrets. We've had people Go to this webinar and immediately afterwards start getting, start getting contacted by employers by implementing these 12 strategies. So make sure you show up for this. And if you're listening to us by audio, it's just cheekyscientist.com slash phd-linkedin-strategy. Cheekyscientist.com phd-linkedin-strategy. We have a lot of great blog articles, new articles out on the Cheeky Scientist blog. Just go to cheekyscientist.com slash blog to see what the top 10 trending articles all are. The number one article currently is what international PhDs need to know about getting a green card. Answers to five common questions. It's a great article. There's a lot of change happening right now, especially if you're from India or China. So make sure you check out this article. There's, a, there's some strategies that you can do. Okay, you're not completely dependent on what the government decides. There are things that you can do to get companies to sponsor you. Remember, most companies have no idea what the visa process looks like. They're intimidated by it. So a big portion of this is understanding the process well enough to explain it simply to employers so they're not intimidated by it and they're more likely to hire you. Uh, a new art, one of our newest articles out is, these are the five parts of a gold standard PhD level industry resume. Does your resume have number three? So make sure you check this out. And we also have the best of this week. You don't have to go anywhere else online to find the best articles. We curate 
we take them all. We have independent researchers find the best articles online related to working in industry, getting hired, thriving, getting promoted in ind industry. And those are on this blog page too, cheekyscientist.com slash blog. So we're going to jump right into the show me the data section. I'm going to bring on Jeanette and her and I are going to go through this section. We have a lot to cover today and we're bringing on our special guest a bit early. So I'm going to bring on Jeanette now. Jeanette, let me see. <laughs> well, let me turn my video on. Let me show my face. Uh, no, no, it's okay. I think maybe oh, there we go. should be able to now. Awesome. There Hello. we go. Good to see you. How are you? <laughs> good. How are you? Really good. So thank you for joining. I'm going to jump in to the show me the data section. Please, for those of you that are on with us live, say hello to Jeanette. She does a great hey, job everyone. bringing together all of this data for us. We're PhDs, so we want to see the data. And we have some, some great uh, figures to show you today before we bring on our first guest. The title of the first figure, it's from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, it's your approach to hiring is all wrong. So overall, you know, this study Jeanette was telling me earlier is about uh, why there are so many um, there are so many different places where employers can get job candidates, but a large portion of those are from internal hires and uh, employers need to spend more time here. But what this shows us is really the five different areas that employers are recruiting job candidates and your job. If you're looking for a job is to attack all five of these areas, maybe not the fourth one, because it has to do with internal hire hires. We're going to break that down. But the other, the other four are starting at the ones that are the, the most successful for employers are employee referrals, third-party websites or online job boards, social or professional networks, third-party recruiters or staffing firms, then finally internal hires. So with that, Jeanette, maybe you can break down a little bit more clearly what we're looking at here. The subtitle is companies are overlooking internal talent, top channels for hires. I just named the top five. What does this show us as someone who's looking to get a job in industry or get our next job in industry? Yeah, definitely. So this is showing you, right, like you said, that these, all these different places are where employers are looking um, for new, new hires. And so you should be in all of those places, as many as you can possibly be. But it's important to note that employee referrals is at the top of this list. So in this survey, the employers had to rank where they were getting the best hires, like the highest quality people. Um, and that's why it doesn't add up to 100 as well. So they were allowed to select more than one option about where are they getting the best um, hires. Mm. And 48% um, of them uh, chose employee referrals. Um, so that's definitely why networking is so important um, and why it should be one, a key part of your job search strategy. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, we always see this. So one very important thing here is that people could choose more than one. That's why you see all the percentages so close to each other. So very likely a lot of them chose three, you know, or four options. Um, that's why you see, you know, a lot of them in the, the 40 percentile, the 30 percentile, and they don't add up to 100. Employee referrals is number one again. You are doing yourself a, a great disservice if you're not using referrals to get hired. Of course, you can upload resumes online and you want to network on LinkedIn and you might even want to respond to recruiters. But just realize when you're responding to a recruiter, that's your lowest chance as somebody, if you're not in an organization currently, that's your lowest chance of getting hired compared to getting a referral from an employee. And we have a whole process that we can take you through for setting up employee interviews and getting referred by those employees after the interview. Any other insights here, Jeanette? I mean, I noticed third-party websites is kind of vague. 
a lot of these websites could be related to actually getting referrals, but really in general just means doing the, what we do best as PhDs, sitting behind a computer and trying to take care of it ourselves. Great. You definitely want to do that, but I wouldn't limit yourself to that. Any final thoughts? Yeah, here? yeah exactly. And the last thing I'd like to add is if you look at the fact that internal hires is actually quite low, um, it's important to realize that this type of networking and all the stuff you need to do continues after your first job. Right. right? So if that is how you're going to make those next steps in your career, as well as that very first transition, all mm. those second, third, fourth that come afterwards, all also rely on networking and referrals and all these other things that we talk about. Yeah. And, and you've all experienced this. When I was finishing up my academic career, I just kind of thought in my subconscious, I guess, that somebody was going to take care of my career for me. I was just going to go to that next step and somebody was going to look out for me as long as I did all the right things. They didn't, of course, and they're not doing that for you, which is probably why you're watching this. Same is true when you get a job. Nobody's thinking about you and your career on a day-to-day -day basis. Even people that, that, you know, if they're in HR or whatever, they're thinking about their careers or other candidates, et cetera. And this shows that they have a tendency to forget the great talent that they've just hired. And they should be nurturing that talent into higher level positions in the company, but they're not. It's your job to keep yourself on their radar. They're not going to say, oh, you have managing you know, promise or leadership promise. We're going to put you into this leadership role. It's your job to push for those leadership roles and to go after them and to stay hungry and to keep yourself visible. And that's a big portion of what we're going to talk about uh, later today with James Robbins. So I want to move forward here. The title of this next figure is LinkedIn Report. These four ideas are shaping the future of HR and hiring. It's at business.linkedin.com slash talent dash solutions uh, slash blog. And it's a trends and research 2019 um, article. And what the first figure shows here is more, uh, more employees want flexibility. So percentage of LinkedIn members who say flexible work arrangements are very important when considering a job. It's gone from 25% in 2013 to 31% in 2017. And so it's a large increase, right? So it says 78% increase in job posts on LinkedIn that mention work flexibility since 2016. Is this a surprise to you, Jeanette? Why do you think flex more, more work flexibility is becoming uh, uh, more and more important to job candidates? Yeah, I think this is just sort of a general reflection of the growth of work from home jobs, you know, or even work flexibility where you work from home sometimes. Mm. Um, and it has to do with the, the growth we've seen in things like Zoom, which we're using today, right, to have this conversation with all of you is that these platforms are becoming really well used by lots of different people. And so it allows for this flexibility where people can choose the type of lifestyle they want. Mm. And I think that that's what this highlights to me and like as a PhD to really think about is flexibility something that's really important to you? Some, it might not, you might not actually, you might not want it, right? But if it's really important that it's growing and to take stock of your own um, lifestyle goals as you approach your job search, that's kind of what this, the big picture that this, this kind of information gives me. Absolutely. And what I would take from this too, is that this is something you can negotiate for, right? It's not going to come out of nowhere if you go to your employer and after you negotiate salary, right? You always negotiate that first. You start negotiating these flexible items like working home at home once one day a week. If you work better that way, it gives you a chance to catch up. You know, it can make you more productive. A lot of studies show that it does. You can negotiate that, right? This is just something else, another chip on the table that you have. Uh, the study also shows that 92% of employers say soft skills matter as much or more than hard skills, which are why, you know, again, it's a lot more virtual work. If you're working in a lab pipetting 
for example, yeah, you might have to be in a lab or wet lab where that's allowed. Um, there's certain regulations there, but you can still do a lot of your data analysis at home. And that takes soft skills to do that. It takes leadership skills to be able to work autonomously. Okay, so this all is coming back to those leadership skills that are important. You want to have a flexible work environment, then employers are going to look to make sure you're the kind of leader who's a self-starter, who can work autonomously, um, if, you know, whether that's from home or somewhere else. So I want to keep moving here. We had a lot of questions come in about government jobs. So we talk about industry jobs. When we say industry, we mean all non-academic jobs. It can be the for-profit sector, the non-profit sector, government, et cetera. We've had some questions about government lately. It seems to be a, another black box for a lot of us. And so we, we pulled up this figure and Jeanette found this. It's, from, it's at uh, www.ipma-hr.org. Uh, it's a 2019 employment outlook report. Again, for government positions. And this figure just shows where these jobs are at. So if you're looking for a government job or you're interested in them, where are they at? Are they at the state level, special districts, federal, other, et cetera? No, most of them are local or municipality positions. So look locally, find the cities that you wanna work for first, and then see what kind of government jobs are there. Anything else to take away from this, Jeanette? I think you're on mute. Yeah, that next little bar graph where, so they, they surveyed all these different people Yes. And they found that 64% of them said that, yes, we're going to hire new people in this year. And I think sometimes with government, that's uh, a bit of a misconception is we think that they're not hiring, right? It's like you have to wait for someone to retire in order to get a position. Um, mm -hmm. But these places do grow and they are hiring, right? So 64% of them um, are saying that, yeah, we want new people. So right. there are opportunities there. Yeah, and so whether you're looking for a leadership position in for-profit, non-profit government, everything we're going to talk about today, um, starting right now when we bring on James, is, is relevant to you. So thank you, Jeanette, for your time. This concludes the Show Me the Data section. Please say thank you, Jeanette, in the chat box if you would. I'm going to jump to our next uh, screen here where I'm going to introduce James Robbins. Very, very fortunate to have James on with us to come on to talk to all of us and to help us understand what the difference is between a leader versus a manager. Uh, James is a rare mix of management, uh, of a management consultant, change specialist, adventurer, and motivational speaker. There's a great picture on his website of him climbing up, I, I don't know, it looks like some very tall mountain, Mount Everest type mountain I'm going to ask him about, but he does a lot of things. He speaks to audiences world, worldwide, helping them raise their performance to match their potential. He has been helping equip and transform leaders for over 20 years. In 2012, he wrote Nine Minutes on Monday, the quick and easy way to go from manager to leader. You definitely want to check out that book. We're going to put a link to it in the chat box, and we'll include it in the post-show notes as well. The book went on to be named the 2012 Business Book of the Year by Canada's Global, uh, by Globe and Mail. Uh, James's style of teaching has sent, uh, set him apart as a master communicator, combining stories from his adventures with practical truths that help audiences make simple changes that stick. Audiences are both inspired and equipped during his time on stage. Uh, while he loves planning new adventures, his greatest expedition is raising his three teenagers. Uh, this is James's website here. There's the picture I was talking about. Uh, I'm definitely going to ask James about this, but you can go to his website, jamesrobbins.com. This is on his About Us page. We'll put the link in the chat box again and include it in the post-show notes. Very, very lucky to have James on. He has, he's a wealth of experience, and again, he specializes in helping us understand what it really means to be a leader. Hello, James. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Isaiah. Thanks for having me on the show. And I uh, love your work, love what you're doing. Certainly meets a need. So uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for the invite. 
You're welcome. And uh, I do appreciate you being on. It's great to talk to somebody with this level of expertise and understanding the difference between a leader and a manager, right? Obviously, a lot of us, we understand what a manager is and getting into management roles. Um, we actually, we have courses, you know, directed to helping people get into that. But being a leader is something different, right? What, what, what is the difference? And how do they, how do the, how do you combine the two? How do you separate the two? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about those two terms, but uh, in the reality is when people think of management, they think of the day-to-day -day execution, uh, but leadership's more than that. It's not just about getting things done and, and reaching goals and stuff. Leadership is, goes beyond that. There's an inspirational component. There's uh, investment in your people. There's belief in people. There's casting vision, not just yourself, but pulling people along with you for the ride. In other words, it's like management, you've got to be good at, getting people to do tasks, but the leadership component is getting people excited to do them with you. Mm. And um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of people because it's easy to get sucked into the day to day. Yeah. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is the management's kind of like the tactical side, like what you might get done in terms of the, the little day to day activities, but the leadership's more strategic, painting that vision, being strategic, keeping people motivated to actually execute those tasks. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, okay, so that's what a leader is. How do you become a good leader? Especially for the people that are watching this, we tend to kind of live in the weeds as PhDs. We drill down to the details. We're really good at the kind of the micro, but maybe not so much the macro, the vision being strategic. How can we train ourselves to zoom out and be a better leader for both ourselves, our own careers, and for, for those that we're working with? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you hit the nail on the head in terms of the number one problem, to be honest, that is hurting engagement. And so that's my field, right? Like I go into companies and I help their managers take a shift into be more inspirational leaders and engage their staff. And again, the problem is it's not that people don't want to be great leaders. It's just that they're so busy, like they're overwhelmed with how much they've got to get done because they're working managers. Like they've got, they have their job to do, but then they also have to lead these people. And we, we still are in the culture of, Somebody who does great gets promoted and now they've got to lead staff, but an incredible shift has to take place once you start leading people because it's no longer about tasks anymore. Now it's about moving people. And if you can't learn how to move people, you're not going to be successful as a leader and you just won't make it. So that's the challenge for a lot of managers today. Yeah. And I would really pay attention to, to what James is saying here for all of you, because as a PhD, you are wired to think you're only successful if you're doing a task by yourself, but that makes you a technician and that's going to really stunt your career. I've seen, I've talked to so many PhDs in the association and so forth that have, they've had a chance to step up into a management role and they've shied away from it because managing people doesn't feel like actually getting work done. I don't know Have you ever experienced that or is that a common problem that you hear is like people, they want to, they don't make that break. Like you just said, they don't turn that corner. They stay more tactical. They, they, or they micromanage, they're, they're the ones that have to get the tasks done. If you've dealt with that, James, how have you helped people overcome that? What, what's, how can they train themselves to, to turn the corner? Yeah, great question. So one of the, one of the things that happens for people, like you said, they, they're, they're technicians, they get promoted, they're used to getting things done. The other thing is, uh, not only is, are we drawn to tangible tasks, right? Tangible tasks reduce our stress, make us feel like we're making progress. But as soon as you become a manager over people, you have to realize that success is no longer about you getting tasks done. Your success actually hinges on the ability of your people to get tasks done. 
And since you're, so think about it this way, your people actually become your new scoreboard. Like before it was your technical skills, it's your proficiency, it's your ability to execute, get things done. That's your scoreboard. Once you start to manage people, that's not your scoreboard anymore. Your scoreboard becomes how well do the people that I manage get their jobs done. And that's really tough for people. Mm. And in fact, like, I appreciate you having me on a little bit early. One of the reasons I had to get off is because I'm, I'm on a webinar with 300 HR managers after this. And one of the, so I work a lot in the HR field. And one of the challenges in HR, like unless a company is growing and they're having to interview to add new people, they don't even want to be interviewing people because HR is trying to be strategic, right? Like they're trying to add value. They're trying to think bigger. They're trying to get a seat at the table. But when they have high turnover, which is something that's really common right now, they've got to, they got to stop what they're doing. They got to come, they got to interview a bunch of people. So just remember that for those of you who are interviewing. And one of the, one of the things that people are looking for from a management perspective is leaders that get it, like leaders that get that it's not just about your proficiency, your technical skills. Like, in other words, you're going to probably compare, like, I don't know everybody who's going to be listening to this, but if we, if we match up everybody with a PhD, we're all going to be pretty close to, in terms of maybe our experience and what we can bring to the table. I'm telling you that the differentiator is when you can speak to that HR manager, that you understand leadership, that you understand why, why turnover happens because people get stuck in the weeds and they fail to, to lead their people. Mm. you'll have them right there. They'd be like, Oh, hire this person. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, 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 again, I see this with a lot of PhDs that they just have never had the opportunity to even try that out or to develop those skills. You are, you know, you're called a motivation specialist. You just said a big part of it is motivating their people. So it seems like there's two aspects. You want to be a leader. You have to motivate people to hit some sort of target. And then you have to feel good when they hit the target instead of you hitting it, right? Like that task based target. Yeah. So, Talk to me about being a motivation specialist and how to do that first part. How do you, what's the best way to motivate others to hit task-based goals? Yeah, so it all starts with having a good foundation and that comes, you know, we hear about trust and leadership, but honestly, even deeper than trust, it comes from caring about your people. And this is the main point I make to every audience I speak at is that it's moving your leadership from transactional to relational. So we understand transactional, right? We go to the grocery store, we give them money, they give us food, it's a transaction, we're fine. Mm. But when it comes to dealing with human beings, we're all hardwired for this thing called reciprocity. Mm. So that's why, you know, Isaiah, if we go out for lunch and I decide, hey, I'm gonna buy you lunch, you're gonna feel like, okay, well, only if I can get it next time. It's just wired into us. So the same thing happens in a workplace when you can make sure that you're caring about your staff. Like when they really feel like, hey, my boss has invested in me. They know my spouse's name. They know the name of my kids. From time to time, they ask me about it. Just even those little things right there, it changes the dynamic of the relationship and it sets up reciprocity, increases trust. Then people want to work for you because mm -hmm. they don't want to let you down and they don't want to see you fail. And mm -hmm. so that's an important part of it right there. Um, the second piece to this is helping people shift their thinking about their job. You know, if we really want to talk about motivation and I use the example sometimes of, you know, imagine that you've got uh, two guys that have to mow their lawn and on the same street, right? And one guy doesn't want to mow his lawn because uh, he just doesn't want to mow his lawn, but the HOA sends him this angry letter like, hey, we're going to fine you if you don't mow his lawn. Well, in the end, he mows his lawn like he's motivated, but it's an external motivator. 
Hmm. Meanwhile, the guy living beside him, he loves to mow his lawn. He loves the way it looks. He loves this feeling of being a good neighbor. He uh, loves the, the smell of fresh cut grass. In other words, so he mows his lawn. So you take a look at this. Both guys get their lawn cut. In other words, the job gets done. It gets executed. But who does a better job mowing their lawn? Mm. Well, the, the second guy, right? And who blows grass all over the street and doesn't care? Well, it's the first guy. So think about it. Both were motivated. Both got the job done, but not with the same amount of proficiency. What's the difference? The difference comes down to one thing, how they think about the task. Mm. And because one guy had to and one guy gets to. And when a leader can go in and help his or her people shift how they think about what it is they're doing, link it to something bigger, link it to a goal, the mission, uh, how it's impacting people, how it's impacting you, something changes inside us as humans and we shift from an external motivator to an intrinsic one. And, mm. and then everything changes after that. Mm. That makes sense? Yeah, it really does. And uh, I need to go home and mow my lawn. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the last question I have is because you're starting to or starting to expand out and talk about more of a culture and a leadership culture. And we, again, we have a lot of people who are looking to get into a new career path, uh, work at a new company. How can we as job candidates evaluate the leadership culture of a company before it's too late, right? And we get into the wrong leadership culture. Obviously, I'm sure you've seen a lot of different types of leadership cultures. What are some of the different types of cultures you've seen? And then how can we evaluate them before we work for them? That is a really great question. I hope I can answer this on the fly and uh, intelligently. I think uh, if I'm in a job situation, I'm number one, I'm going to ask about the, the leadership team and I'm going to ask a little bit about the culture there in terms of, uh, you know, how open are they to feedback? Uh, do they work in a collaborative environment? Um, the challenge is maybe most HR are going to sense what you're, you're asking and, and if they really want you, they might just tell you everything you want to hear. But to me, the biggest difference, and it comes a little bit from the research that Google did in Project Aristotle about creating safe, respectful environments. Mm -hmm. If you have a safe, respectful environment to go jump into, I mean, that's really what you want because then you can speak up when you see something that's not right uh, without the, the fear of repercussions. Uh, so to me, it really does come down to that. Hey, is this a safe place to work? Is this a respectful environment? And, you know, again, that's really tough and until you're actually in there. Uh, but if you have a chance to actually talk to other coworkers, those are the questions you want to ask. Mm. Yeah, great, great insights. So thank you very much for your time. I know you have your own show you're going to uh, with those, those HR professionals. Very exciting. Um, where can everybody go to get your book? I, want, I didn't talk about that yet, but I want to make sure we have the link and here's a few words for you, from you about, about the book. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, they can, well, you can find it on Amazon. It's called Nine Minutes on Monday. It basically, what it does is it marries the tangible part of our brain, the checklist side with the people side. Like how do we, it's all about tapping into the engagement drivers, the things that science has told us, this moves people. And when you can be intentional about those things, then you're going to see great results. So you can find that on Amazon or at jamesrobbins.com. Love to see you there. All right, everyone. So please do me a favor and thank James in the chat box. I'm going to show a couple of his, uh, book pages here on his website. Uh, and again, James, thank you very much for your time. Great to see you. And uh, I look forward to uh, reading more of your, your articles and, and your books. Sounds good, Isaiah. I appreciate the time. Thanks, everybody. Oh, wait, sorry. Last question. Where, where is this? What was the hike to? What mountain? Uh, uh, well, that's not even, I, that's a Photoshop photo, that one. The other ones are me down in, in uh, South, South America. 
South America. Uh, down at a place in Bolivia, actually. So Bolivia, okay. That's yeah. what the, the one on the hiking up the snow mountain. That's what I was exactly, curious about. Exactly, yeah. That's in right. South America. All right. Thank you, James. Great to see All you. Right. See you Take guys. Care. Bye. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. We're going to keep moving right along. Great to have James on. We will talk to Team Cheeky here about what they thought of James's insights. We're going to bring on Eva now. I'm showing Eva's uh, bio, and I'm going to share my screen one more time. So this is Eva, she is an associate. Hey, she has a master's in biology in Poland and then pursued her postdoctoral studies in cell biology and regenerative medicine at the AO Research Institute of Switzerland. Uh, after a successful time as a PhD student, she moved to the UK to work as a postdoctoral research scientist at the Southampton University. Uh, she, here she worked on an interdisciplinary and collaborative research project while also ex experiencing teaching to medical students. Uh, from there, she went on and moved away from the bench and started working in a commercial role as a technical sales specialist in a company providing services for biotech and pharma, Oxford Genetics. Uh, she is currently a life science specialist at VWR International, part of Avantor. Did I say that right, Eva? Yes, that's correct. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Hello. Thank you. Good afternoon. Please tell Eva hello in the chat box. Great to have a fellow associate on who's currently in industry. So Eva, I wanted to bring you on to talk about your career path. You know, this part of the radio show, we like to talk about uh, how you got into it, what you do on a day-to-day, et cetera. Um, so maybe you could just start with telling us why. Why did you decide to transition out of academia way back in the beginning of your, of your transition? It always happens mentally before physically first, right? Sure. Sure, obviously. Um, yes, it's a very good question. And I wish I knew that earlier on what I know now uh, about the insights that, that I've had uh, and that it happened much faster, but yeah, everything takes time. Um, as, as you said, I, I was really happy with, uh, with pursuing the postdoctoral studies. And then I moved into the academia uh, from Independent Research Institute to academia. Uh, that was a big jump I would say and big mentality switch uh, and I realized I don't really get this environment uh, I don't really want to compete against my colleague who sit next to me uh, getting mm. the grant and being in a position whether it's me or you um, I didn't understand why can't we do something collaboratively mm. there's unfortunately too many PhDs not enough jobs not enough positions yes. and there's a lot of competition for the grants so mm. That was something that was not, not, not suiting there. And also I had a very great advantage that I worked with a technician who could do part of my job. And I realized that actually I'm really happy not being in the lab rather than being with the people. So mm. I think that was quite clear at the time that I should actually look for something else. It was not easy though <laughs> to realize this. Yeah, and I, I think that not easy part is something that's worth talking about because it's what a lot of people watching are going through. Um, 
what made it difficult? Was it just the, the loss of leaving academia or you felt like you were turning your back on some things or it just was uncharted territory? So there was a lot of uncertainty. Maybe can you help us understand what that was for you? Obviously, well, there was a big, big component was like uncertainty. What else? Uh, what what can I do? Uh, what could where I could be? What I could be happy with? What mm. I can? What else I can do? Um, except of being a scientist. Uh, and another component was obviously letting go mentally of certain fixed idea of certain fixed. Um, uh, I think the the role that I had about me and myself possibly being too much attached to what I do at work rather than who I am. Mm. Yeah, no, and I think that's something we, a lot of us face. It's, a lot of it comes down to identity, right? You said who yeah, you are and, and realizing that who you are has to change <laughs> uh, pretty significantly when you transition into industry. Um, you know, we call it an academic PhD versus an industry PhD, et cetera. So you, you decided to go into technical sales and yes. so my next question is why did you decide that like how did it come up how did you realize that was an option and the right option for you uh well to be honest with you i didn't choose it myself initially <laughs> mm. um i think i just i just made a list of uh or because there are so many options so i made a list of what i would like to do during the day obviously uh, mm -hmm. And I still had my fixed idea about certain role, job titles uh, that I was focusing on. But some, somehow, independently of what I was looking at, um, certain roles started coming to me and that was all related to sales mm -hmm. um, and some opportunities. And I have to say that at the beginning, I said, like, no to this, no, sales, no, nah, I'm not really, I don't mm -hmm. see myself in sales, no. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but after a while, I was like, well, yeah, we need to do something um, uh, in life. So let, let, let's try it on. Let's see how it goes. And actually, the second um, commercial interview that I had was really successful. Yeah. And so, so actually, it was sales chose me in a way. <laughs> no, I like that. And so I want to talk about the difference because I think we all have this idea of what sales is when it comes to like selling something that's not biotech or pharma or STEM and not from a PhD versus what it actually is when you're a PhD. So what did you, when you were like, no, that look you gave, what did you think sales was before that made you shake your head? Um, what, what image well, did you in your mind? Yeah. Basically a, a lot of emails and working on like crazy on the target because you hear about the roles, uh, about the sales position when they have, when the uh, meeting targets are, are set very high and basically people um, have to meet like even 10 or 16 people a day um, overall. And that it's so that, you know, there's no, I, I didn't see it as a adding value and adding quality to anyone's life, including the customers, because I met with some of the sales reps um, or sales specialists when I was a researcher and it was basically to me, it gave me the feeling that it's like, well, they are just ticking the box <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, overall. I think it's what but a lot it of depends us... on the pens, depends on the person, depends on the company, like I can see it now. Yeah, very good point. And that goes back to that kind of leadership culture we're talking about. Is it transactional, right? Is a sales position transactional or is it more of building these quality relationships, teaching, 
right? And, mm -hmm. and something that goes beyond checking those boxes. And so obviously for you in the position you got in, it was more of the latter, right? It was more about quality relationships, et cetera. So what is, what is your sales position look like currently? Talk, can you talk a little bit about what you do, the relationships you build, the teaching, et cetera? Uh, yes. So uh, in my in my current position, this is like a little bit uh, a mix between real life science specialist, uh, so sales position, and account management position. I have to say, mm. uh, this is because I work on actually with customers in one account. It's a GlaxoSmithKline in the UK. Uh, this is a uh, uh, under the contract that the company won a tender for for a preferred supplier. So we are in the phase of implementation and um, hence there's a lot of problem solving. Mm. Um, a lot of um, meetings with people, both with customers, uh, scientists, both with suppliers. And as I'm still very new into, uh, into the role, um, it's interacting with people in a house, in a company, uh, with solving the problems or helping me to um, close the opportunity uh, and it's also a lot about teaching as well, uh, because my role involves setting up seminars, exhibitions, something that can help uh, customers. Mm. This is this actually can be driven by them, what they want. If they tell me what they want, that's great. Um, if they tell me what, what they want help with, that's fantastic. Um, there's also um, a lot of training for myself still. Um, I actually went through some re-induction recently, because I... I uh, I've been in the role for a bit more than six months now and it was a good time to go back and actually um, meet the people I've met in my first or second week at the company and go and talk to them with problems and ask them the questions like from the real life that I have. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. and I, so I think it's, it's, it's a bit different than, than uh, and very varied uh, compared to what I thought about it before. Yeah, it's different, right? I mean, it's very, um, again, it's not as transactional. It's more relationship-based, especially mm -hmm. when you are, you know, if you're selling a hamburger, it's going to be very transactional, but you're selling this equipment that's allowing people to do their research or much larger projects. It has to be uh, based on relationship because you're like the teacher. It's almost like you're the professor, a professor in a sense, helping them apply your instrument to things or understand it at least. You know, you're probably working mm -hmm. with a team of other people application scientists, et cetera, too. And so that's why I want to start. So you kind of defined what you do on your role, but can you talk a little bit more about what you do in terms of a department? Like who else do you work with? Do you work with application scientists? Do you work with others? Who on your team, like what are your cross-functional, uh, what do those cross-functional relationships look like? Uh, I work with a team or actually few teams. Uh, one team is the theme for for our account so gsk like bwr team where we have um our director where i work um with account managers from different sites um and other specialists equipment specialists chemistry specialists um uh, ppe specialist uh because the the bwr is a really big company uh, i'm only having a portion of it, which is the life science, um, but we provide any, any, anything from, the, from a lab mat uh, to the big freezers, big, big equipment. Mm. So obviously uh, I'm interacting a lot with my account manager or managers um, who either have a meeting with 
uh, with with people and then they come across something that's within my portfolio or it's the, the vice versa uh, overall um we also it's a it's a new contract so we work together to make sure that all the implementation goes smooth on the customer side and also that on our on the internal side the company side that we're um going according to the development plan the implementation plan and also the financial plan uh, Mm. overall i also work with um another team I'm a life science specialist and the company has the, the th- a team of life science specialists who are uh, in different regions and there it's uh, we interact and we kind of uh, we, we meet and we learn from each other um, mm. uh, how, how to um, move the opportunities, how to find opportunities, how to work with the suppliers because we yes. work with the same suppliers uh, overall. And there is again team of suppliers that I work with. Mm. Uh, so it's very different people, uh, different roles, different interactions. So there's a lot of different nodes, right? And so you brought up everything yes. from like suppliers, finance, right? Billing, um, other people who are more, you know, helping um, support afterwards, right? After the sale and the, you know, probably marketing, lots of different points of connections. I think, you know, when you're in a technical sales position, one thing that's nice is not just they tend to be, you know, uh, overall an industry more highly paid. They're not just transactional when it's a PhD technical sales position. And all, all of those nodes come to you because you're the one working with the client. So every node, like you're the, you're the center of it. And this is why yeah. salespeople uh, often get treated the best in terms of having the most options and most flexibility, especially if you perform well and you can get into almost any position from sales because mm-hmm. you understand the, the VOC, the voice of the customer, you have the KOL connections. Um, so I think that's, that can't be understated. Um, where do you, where do you see yourself going from sales? Is there like a vertical path to go to? Like, is there like a director of sales, et cetera? Is it more lateral? I think there's something to be said for having sales experience, right? Sales experience is one of those boxes that gets checked kind of like a PhD. Do you have sales experience or not? Like if you do, you open yourself up to a whole nother world of positions in industry. So have you seen that already? Have you had people contact you since you've gained sales experience? What, what does the future look like? I think that the first change, the, uh, the first switch was the most difficult where I didn't have any connections and uh, anywhere, anything in my, in my CV. Uh, when I was changing the job last year, uh, actually it was I, I, I reached out to to the um, to recruiters that I worked with before, um, and that was already a little bit different interaction uh, mm. between us. Um, but in general, I see now that half a year after being in a role, I actually start receiving information about jobs, not always relevant. Um, because they require way more experience, for instance. But so it's 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 generic. But at least there's the this first step of search is done, in a way. Um, so it's it's helping. Uh, people are, are knocking. I know what the options are within within the sales, but I have to say um, that I do not see sales as my, as my long or life career path uh, overall. Hmm. Um, it gives uh, great flexibility, but I wish uh, I would like to have more flexibility. So it's a big learning experience and learning about the, the a lot about the transferable 
um, getting uh, a lot of transferable skills uh, overall, but I see myself as my own boss (laughs) in the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, the leadership skills you gain uh, during sales, uh, any sales experience is really, really important. It's a lot of autonomy going to it, and it's a lot of you have to rely on yourself and learn these different transferable skills to hit very specific targets. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great experience to have. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this with the other associates and other PhDs overall. So thank you for coming on, Eva. Thank you. On your success. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me as well. Of course. I'll see you in the group. So please thank Eva in the chat box, if you would, for coming on with us. Very, very grateful to have her on. We're going to keep moving right along, and I'm going to bring on our next guest who's going to talk about a career in medical writing. Medical writing has become kind of an umbrella term that, term that means a lot of things throughout the field of scientific communications. Uh, so this is Evgenia. She earned her PhD in biochemistry from the University of Buenos Aires, Argentina, and has been working in the medical writing industry since 2015. She's done freelance. She's worked with companies, editor, communications consultant, uh, lots of different uh, experiences overall. She is an active member of the EMWA and co-editor of the Medical Writing Journal. This is her LinkedIn page. She is also an associate, so you can connect with her there. I'm going to see if we can get Evgeny on now. I do see her. Let me see if that button will help you start the video, Evgeny. Hello, how are you? Hi, Isaiah. How are you? I'm doing well. Let's see if I can hide the non-video people. If you can see in here, Evgeny, can you say hello, Evgeny, in the chat box, please? Very excited to have Evgeny on. Evgeny, we're going to jump right in. Why, you know, you're very, very active in the medical writing industry. Before we even talk about why you got in there, what would you say now? It's changed a little bit, right? Like medical writing means a lot of things. How would you define medical writing, the field overall? Well, I think you already said it perfectly. It's like a huge umbrella term and there's like so many things that fall under medical writing. So like, of course, like there's like the strict medical writing, which already like has so many different directions. So like you can write, uh, you can work in, in medcoms, write in more like academics, academic style um, text. Then you can do like regulatory writing, you can yes. do medical journalism, and then you can also work as an editor, you can work as a medical or scientific translator, mm-hmm. you can become a project manager. Yes. Like you can even work like as a science illustrator or like a science graphic designer or like so many things like you can leverage your not only like your transferable skills from academia but also like your personal skills and interests yes yeah thank you for clarifying that i think it's important for all of you to know there's just so many options it is a giant field so why did you get into it you know we're going to talk a little bit about the type of people that should get into it but why did you specifically why were you drawn to medical writing well, the, like my first job was as an editor. Then I started doing more writing with time. But after academia, what I noticed is that I enjoy so much doing like the editing part. I used to do it a lot with my colleagues, you know, like just reviewing like their papers, their PowerPoint presentations, posters. Like I was always, uh, I had a very um, strong eye for detail. So like I was always like nitpicking, okay, so this is, this, there is like two spaces here, like there is a comma missing here. And, and I also like when I was writing my, my thesis, it was clear to me that I enjoyed more like 
the pure writing part and not so much like writing about my own results. Like mm. I, I didn't see myself as a like typical like academic researcher, but I did like, like the little bit of like creativity and like the literature research of, of my PhD. So mm. after that, it took me some time. It was not straightforward out of academia. Um, but yeah, I realized that that was exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I think for those of you who have that eye for detail, you like digging in, you are self-motivated, right? A big part of the leadership skills we've been talking about today is being able to work autonomously and being driven on your own to get things done and to hit goals and tasks and milestones. Uh, it, it's a great career path for you. So on that note of having to have that self-motivation, right? How did you stay motivated when you spent these long periods of time working on your own, uh, writing and editing, et cetera? What, what did you do? What were some of your daily routines? What, what tricks would you have for somebody who's going to get into this kind of role? Well, um, for the motivation part, I would say like what motivates me the most is when I get other people's feedback. It's just amazing. When I, like sometimes I get like just a message on LinkedIn saying like, hey, I read your article and it changed my life. You know, you inspired me to do this, this, and this. People connect with me like on LinkedIn, uh, by email, Facebook, like so many different ways. And when I hear that, it's just like, okay, this is all worth it. Like what I'm doing, it's worth it. And for me, like the communications part is, is about that. Um, as a daily routine, I have to admit that I'm pretty bad with daily routine because my days are not, I don't have one day like the same as the other. So like one yeah. day I will be like editing a manuscript, the other day I will be doing like writing for a blog and the other day I will be leading a big project or co-editing the MO journal as you perfectly said. So it's, yeah. I, and the other thing is that my week is completely and atypical as well mm. so i will be maybe i will be working on a weekend and then like taking tuesday or wednesday off and go hiking to the mountains mm. or i don't know just having a girly spa day with my friends <laughs> something like that so that's kind of like what my life looks like so a lot so it's important because while you have to be self-motivated you have to hit these goals there's a lot of flexibility we talked about during the show me the data section and so some people really thrive in this kind of environment. Uh, of course, there's different types of medical writing positions, right? So what are some of the things that you're seeing? There's obviously big firms and companies you can work with where you're working in-house. And then there's a the complete opposite where you're working on your own as a, of a, as a freelancer. Do you see a lot of diversity in the types of positions that are not just the titles, but in the work structure, small companies, large companies, freelancers, et cetera? Yeah, again, you have like such a variety there. There are like big companies that can hire you like either like to work like office space or even remote by working for big companies. You have startup companies that like they, they hire a lot of scientists to do the writing. This can be like more like uh, scientific writing towards like the technological side of things or maybe like mm -hmm. medical writing or like of course like editors. And, and then like there are so many people who are working as freelancers for themselves or like studying their own companies. And even these people, they may end up working for these big companies as well. Mm. So like you can be a freelancer or you can have your own company and working for a big pharma is if that's your thing, or maybe like doing regulatory writing, 
there are like so many ways that you can go around it. There's like mm. no, no one, I, it's definitely not like the typical, like one size fits all. Mm. Like it, it, I think people who want to get into medical writing, they first need to get the, like a clear picture of what they want. Like mm. what's their typical, like, or their ideal day in their lives. So like, mm. are they, they enjoy working like in the big teams, like managing the teams or maybe like more like following um, orders and being tell, told what to do, having this flexibility of working on their own or they need to um, maybe work in an office. And yes. because of this, like so many options, you can get into anything. Really. Mm. Yeah, and I think, the, again, there's a lot of diversity. Understanding it can be complex, and, and finding the right position for you can be complex, too. And that kind of takes me to my final line of questioning, which is, so how can you get into these positions? How do you find the right type of company and position for you? How did you do that? What questions did you ask yourself? And then what's different with the hiring process for medical writers versus other positions? Great questions. Um, so for me, it was a little bit of a bumpy road because when I started, I didn't know like where to look, like which were these companies, what were the types of medical writing that I can do. And also I didn't know which, which kind of like companies were trustworthy because like one of my first freelance experiences, what was not so great because of that, you know, like I was very much like underpaid and I was working, I don't know, like, hundred hours per day or something like that so it was a little bit bumpy um right now what i would say like what i would tell someone who is who wants to get into medical writing first like explore all the different options you know like the medical writing associations the big association they provide a lot of information about that They're, like so many resources um where you can actually go and see okay what are the types of jobs that I can get and when you get that clarity just sit and write mm. or sit and do whatever you think that you will like to do it's not like we think that we write our manuscripts in academia and then we're like okay we get into medical writing we got ourselves a job and then we already know how to do it mm. and maybe you need to write about something else maybe it's for a different audience maybe it's more marketing oriented maybe it's more like for um for general public and we don't really know how to do that and sometimes we in those cases we overestimate ourselves mm. kind of like that we can do it so like what i would say like the most important thing is just sit and write and do mm. whatever if you think that you will enjoy writing for a lay audience then sit and write for a lay audience publish it on your linkedin publish it on facebook like start a blog or something or get feedback, you know, like that's the most important part. Yeah, and there's so many, I was just gonna yeah. jump in to say, I think that's a really important point. There's so many different types of writing out there. You know, what we think is we've written in academia, we understand it, but like you said, there's so many audiences, so many different types of, of um, ways to put the words to the paper that companies are looking for. So please, yeah, please continue. I think that was a great point though. Yeah, I was, I was getting to your, your last point about like how to, get a job and like what's different in like with the interviews and I would say like of course there are like the nuances that we learn as cheekies like how to 
you know, network and add value and connect and all these things which are extremely valuable. But then you get to the point where you have to pass a writing test. And yes. that's, that will not happen like all, like it's not like mandatory. Maybe like some positions will not require it. But most of, more, most of the companies who that mm. hire medical writers, they will ask you to take either like writing tests or writing and editing tests, depending mm. on your role. And that's where usually people freak out. <laughs> and they're kind of like, oh, I've never done this, this thing before. I've never seen like, I don't know how to create like a regulatory document. I don't know what a CTD is. I don't know how to write like marketing material. You know, like, and, and that's, again, we come back to the same point, say it and write. Like you need yes. to get practice, like in order to kind of like reduce that anxiety of like the tests that we have, like since probably like we were like child's like first years of school, um, yes. you need to just, just do it. I sound like yeah. No, no, I completely agree. And, and <laughs> I think the, that is one big aspect that's different is these medical writing tests and it, it really shapes the entire interviewing process for these medical writing positions, all different kinds. Thank you, Evgenia. Thank you. I will show this one last time. We have a very special webinar tomorrow. Brand new slides, brand new teaching points. LinkedIn has some updates that you don't know about that makes your job a lot easier. They have machine learning now. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. We're going to show you what LinkedIn talent, the other LinkedIn for employers looks like. I've been prepping some very special things. So you can get on you can sign up for this webinar tomorrow, 12 LinkedIn strategies for getting hired in industry, one of our rare public webinars. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pop, pop, bitch! Oh, <laughs> oh,